Richard Grossman, welcome to the new school. Hello, Michael. Pleasure to be with you. Richard, you are a, a man of many parts. Uh, you are an author, uh, the author of two books on Emerson. Uh, you are an essayist, a psychotherapist, an educator. Uh, you've written uh, a number of other books, uh, one called The Other Medicines, about complementary medicines. You work with cancer patients. You do many, many different things. And we decided we'd talk this morning uh, with a focus on your work on Emerson. Uh, two books, one is called A Year with Emerson, which is a, a selection of quotations from Emerson, uh, uh, like a calendar in effect, uh, with a different quotation for every uh, day of the year. And the other book with which I'd like to start is a book called The Tao of Emerson, which uh, compares Emerson with Lao Tzu and with Lao Tzu's great work, The Tao Te Ching. And I wanted to ask you to start with, what drew you to Emerson as a source? Well, originally, of course, uh, like all men of my generation, which is a long time ago, I uh, was assigned to Emerson in college and very taken with one or two pieces. And then it um, sort of faded out of my consciousness or my attention for a long time. But at the end of the war, I was in the war for four years, and I was at, in the Pacific for two years. And I uh, was working on the invasion plans of Japan, actually, the day that the bomb was dropped on uh, Hiroshima. And uh, I, at that point, became a pacifist because I was so overwhelmed by, by the enormity of that event, which I didn't completely understand. And when I got back to the to civilian life, uh, I needed a community of like-minded people who had come to a, a position of pacifism. And I found the War Resisters League, a wonderful group of men and women who dating back to World War One. Um, and uh, I found a place there and began to meet with them and understand the traditions that drew each of them into the movement of pacifism and to read the things they were reading. And among the things they were reading, it turned out, was Thoreau, Gandhi, and Emerson, uh, along with many other people who had spoken of pacifism from ancient times all the way up to Pope John the Twenty-Third. So I was reacquainted with Emerson through my commitment to pacifism and um, then began to study him daily. And I've been reading him daily for over 50 years, actually. Was, did you have a, there's a quote from Emerson at the beginning of your year with Emerson, uh, a quote that says, a chief event of life is that day in which we have encountered a mind that startled us. Uh, did Emerson startle you from the start? Well, you know, we have to decide whether whether in 21st century language can accommodate the phenomenon of being startled. Uh, I think he was, uh, I, he is a startling, surprising man for his time. Uh, he didn't startle me so much as just speak to my heart and make me feel as though he had been reading my mind and my heart. Now, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, was uh, an essayist, philosopher, and poet, and uh, led the transcendentalist movement uh, in New England. Uh, what, for you, are the central themes that you find in Emerson to which you resonate? Well, I think that uh, among the ones that are uh, most important to me are the ones that anticipate a lot of what we now call humanistic and transpersonal psychology, in that those psychologies are characterized by entertaining the, the principle and the, and the idea of a higher self. Uh, Emerson's belief that there was divinity in all living things, including stones, I might add. He was really, I think, a pantheist. Um, the, the primacy that he gave to intuition and to what he calls reason, as opposed to understanding, uh, which is a contrast between instinct and knowledge um, that I think certainly affects all of us who've been living in an era in the last hundred years that's been dominated by the, by the successes of physics and chemistry. And he believed in, the, in of all things, that matter was secondary to spirit, and so do I. And in your book, 
The Tao of Emerson. Uh, do you have a copy nearby, by the way? Yeah, I do. Okay. If you turn to uh, page XX20 in your introduction, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, uh, the paragraph, uh, actually the sentence starts, I think, uh, on the previous page, page 19, mm-hmm. about um, I've taken this approach because after many years. Could you read that uh, section uh uh, down through your description in the following paragraph of the the core principles that you uh, find in Emerson? I'd be glad to. Uh, I have taken this approach because after many years of reading and studying both the ideas of Lao Tzu, the rural mystic, and the works of the Sage of Concord, I have become convinced that in a mysterious but remarkable way, Ralph Waldo Emerson, a self-defrocked American minister of the 19th century, evolved a personal worldview and philosophical stance so parallel to the Tao Te Ching that his own oeuvre of over 40 volumes of poetry, lectures, addresses, personal journals, and notebooks contains the essence of the sacred ancient text. And then you go on to say these two men, separated by almost 2,500 years, uh, had these remarkably comparable messages. And would you read that section that begins... Right. Yeah. Um, it goes, one of its young... Uh, uh, we're sages whose messages were remarkably alike. Right. Live a simple, tranquil life. Trust your intuition. Find and revere the spiritual grace in the natural world. Act without self-assertion. Commit no violence against living things or persons. Try to harmonize with the ebb and flow of nature and circumstances. And above all, assure that there is a place in the world for humility, yielding, gentleness, and serenity. Now, those values, would you say, uh, to what degree would you say um, that Emerson's values or his way of being became core to your own sense of how to live in the world? Well, it was very parallel. I have to say almost immediately that Emerson was, interestingly enough, not a pacifist. After all, he had been born in 1803. He had lost a grandfather, a minister, uh, to death during the Revolutionary War. His sphere of influence uh, was in Concord, which is 10 minutes from where the shop was heard around the world. Uh, The Revolutionary War was begun. Uh, and as late as the Civil War, he was so angry at the South that uh, he actually says in some letters that we weren't tough enough on them, we should have hurt them more. So that's not pacifism. But with it all, his life reflects a personal pledge of um, uh, really humane behavior toward all living things. And he was not a violent man, even though he could his patriotism could be roused and and be forgiven, I think, for its time. So it wasn't precise, it wasn't um, item for item, but the spirit of Emerson is, uh, is in those sentences, and um, I would like to think that, that, that I've been able to live in accordance with them for some time. You mentioned that you find in Emerson some of the core aspects of humanistic psychology and transpersonal psychology. Yes. Could you say more about that? Well, for one thing, I mean, if you look at the humanistic and transpersonal movements, they are characterized by putting things on the therapeutic table that weren't there before under the influence of the Freudians and the behaviorists who were in great... uh, fanatic imitation of hard science, and who didn't want to hear things about love, didn't want to hear things about a higher consciousness, let alone the concept of a cosmic consciousness that Jung contributed to us, Uh, the idea that somehow we all share in a cosmic way with a a certain awareness that makes all of us, uh, well, one of his favorite examples was to ask the rhetorical question, why is it that the little boys in 17th century New Guinea were tracing circles in the sand, while in Europe they're trying to build rose windows in cathedrals. What, what is there about the, the circle as a mandala that, that comes out of a human consciousness irrespective of communication? Because clearly those 
cultures could not have been connected together. And so the possi- all those possibilities that we now see, or even getting out of that field into latter-day um, anthropology and paleontology, we have Teilhard de Chardin in the 50s and 60s positing the idea of an evolving planet, of an evolving world. Uh, these aren't the things that the traditional psychologies were interested in. And Emerson was. Emerson uh, intuited somehow um, that that there was a lot more to uh, human um, comprehension than what had been developed in the um, in, with the scientific approach. And as much as he respected science, and he was avidly fond of people like Darwin and, and other scientists of, of the earlier times, uh, he kept wanting to remind us that... Um, the foundations of man are not in matter, but in spirit. And that also is what could be said of the humanistic transpersonal psychology. When you say the foundations of man are not in matter, but in spirit, how literally do you take that personally? Well, I take it this personally, that in, in psychosynthesis, a system in which I train, for example, uh, we find it uh, very congenial to help people open up and talking to us and to enter into a dialogue with us by asking a question of, why did that spark of consciousness choose to incarnate in you? Now, that's, that's like asking someone, as I once heard a great physician who was an, an expert in hypnotherapy, I heard him ask a subject whom he was attempting to induce a trance in, what did your mother think of the day she heard she was pregnant with you? And the woman answered instantly, by the way. So that if you ask someone, why did that spark of consciousness choose to incarnate in you? That's throwing you into a, a, a cosmic perspective that is pure spirit. Uh, I mean, I grew up with all the, the, the legends and myths about my birth in, on the hottest day in 1921 in Chicago, Illinois. You know, that nonsense about my father running the elevator in his underwear and, and the other, you know, trappings that we all hear and grow up with. But I now think uh, that that they were just, my mother and father were attending to the incarnation of a spirit and that it, why it chose there has been one of the things I've been trying to find out all my life. And what I think most of us are charged with and are obligated to do. Um, in that connection, by the way, there's a wonderful thing. If you turn, you have a copy of the book. Yes, I do. Well, turn to verse 36 or chapter 36. And may I read this? Please do. Latsu says in the Leggy translation, "Man at his birth is supple and weak; at his death, firm and strong. So it is with all things. Trees and plants in their early growth are soft and brittle; at their death, dry and withered." Thus it is that firmness and strength are the concomitants of death, softness and weakness the concomitants of life. Hence he who relies on the strength of his forces does not conquer, and a tree which is strong will fill the outstretched arms and thereby invites the feller. Therefore the place of what is firm and strong is below, and that of what is soft and weak is above. And Emerson says, in this spirit, when we come into the world, a wonderful whisper gives us a direction for the whole road. Ah, if one could keep this sensibility and live in the happy, sufficing present, and find the day and his chief means contenting, which only ask receptivity in you, and no strained exertion or cankering ambition. We are not strong by our power to penetrate, to have distinction in laurels and consumption, The world is enlarged for us not by new objects, but by finding more affinities and potency, potencies than those we have. Well, that's what I meant when I talk about trying to find what the path is that that was laid out for that spark of consciousness in that other formulation. Uh, Hearing the call was another way of putting it, that wonderful whisper that, that accompanied us coming into the world. I ask these questions because I... I'm authentically curious about them, Richard. The the question about uh, reincarnation, uh, the question about uh, the immortality of the soul, um, these are questions that, for me, uh, 
I still do not know the answer to. And so when I asked how literally you take this, uh, I'm reminded of uh, one of Emerson's contemporaries, uh, or maybe it's someone more recent, who said he was a combination of Plato and Montaigne. And uh, Plato, of course, was the idealist to whom uh, these conceptions came readily. But Montaigne was uh, quite agnostic about a lot of things, you know, sort of, what do I know? Que sais-je, you know. Uh, so my question to you when I asked you personally about it is, do you hold uh, uh, this question of how did this spark uh, of soul come into being? Do you hold the, uh, the transcendental uh, idealist position as something that through your life experience and psychotherapy you have come to know as a mysterious truth, but a truth nonetheless? Or do you hold it as a mystery that may be, and perhaps we like to think about it that way, but you're not certain? Well, I have heard you say that on many occasions, that you find the questions of such enormity that you haven't been able to reach any acceptable conclusion for now. Right. And I say it perhaps in a slightly different way, which is that I have no idea if the various concepts or formulations of reincarnation or other lives come to us. Uh, I have no idea whether that's true or not, but my answer is I wouldn't be surprised. And I would agree with that, actually. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised either. And that, I think, is the Emerson uh, uh, position as well. There is a passage, uh, I can't put my finger on it, in which he almost says that, that he, he wouldn't be surprised if science, he was really anticipating um, um, artificial light, artificial intelligence. He said, I wouldn't, in effect, I wouldn't be surprised if science at one point gets together and puts all, puts all the elements of what we call humanity into another body and, and creates new life. But in the meantime, let's live this one. I mean, he also was a very existential guy. He actually coined the phrase, do your thing. That comes out of the 60s. Remember that? Yes, I do indeed. And his formulation was, do your thing and I shall know you, meaning how you express yourself in this world tells me who you are. I've, I must say, in, in reading your two books uh, and reading in Emerson and uh, reading also some of the sources that you recommended, uh, Robert Richardson's remarkable biography, yeah. Emerson, The Mind on Fire, and then his uh, additional uh, short and wonderful book. The title is First We Read and Then We Write. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, and I had that experience of, um, of an encounter with a mind that I had read before. You know, my copy of Emerson's essays, The Portable Emerson, uh, edited by Carl Bode with an introduction in collaboration with Malcolm Cowley, I found it all marked up. You know, I've been through it before, sure. but 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 nonetheless, there was this uh, sort of explosion of uh, recognition uh, that here was someone who thought in a way that I find profoundly congenial, uh, and that really brought together so many of the sources that we refer to today. Uh, in the 1850s and so right, forth. Right. It's an extraordinary yeah. experience. He can, he can be discovered and rediscovered dozens of times over the course of a lifetime. And at some point it sort of sinks in and becomes part of your own plasma. <laughs> at least that's what happened to me. And, um, I mean, can I refer you to another wonderful, mind-boggling um, passage? Yes, please. In, uh, in his essay called Prospects, which is really chapter eight of the uh, of his first book, Nature, which was published when he was 33 in 1836, published anonymously, by the way, at first, and then later acknowledged in great classic success. Can you read from it? Yeah, here it is. Meantime, in the thick darkness, there are gleams of a better light, occasional examples of the action of man upon nature with his entire force with reason as well as understanding. Now, see, that's the, the, 
contrast I was making before between intuition and knowledge. That's what reason is a synonym for him, for intuition and instinct. Understanding is a synonym for science and knowledge. Such examples are, colon, the traditions of miracles in the earliest antiquity of all nations, the history of Jesus Christ, the achievements of a principle, as in religious and political revolutions, and in the abolition of the slave trade, the miracles of enthusiasm, as those reported of Swedenborg, Hohenlohe, and the Shakers, many obscure and yet contested facts, now arranged under the name of animal magnetism, prayer, eloquence, self-healing, and the wisdom of children. How wonderful. Isn't that and say again which, what, where that is from? That's from the essay called Prospects, which is chapter 8 of the book, okay. Nature. Wonderful. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's remarkable, because here, in there he anticipates, he anticipates integrative medicine, by the way. And animal magnetism is the, is the forerunner and the antecedent of modern-day modern hypnotherapy and psychotherapy. He includes prayer, even though he himself... Uh, left the ministry because he would not continue to, to serve the uh, uh, communion because he felt, in his words to his congregation, I cannot believe that Jesus wanted us to remember him in this fashion. Now, leaving the ministry, he was a Unitarian minister with the Second Unitarian Church in Boston, yes. which his father had belonged to, I believe. And leaving the ministry at the young age that he did it, uh, shortly after his first wife's death, was a, a tremendous career risk. He was regarded uh, as a failure in many respects by his family. Oh, yes. The family had been strongly influenced by the dominant religion of the time, which was congregational. And um, this was, and because of the, uh, the tradition of having ministers in the family, his abandonment of it wasn't completely pleasant. Nobody split over it. They didn't split over it, I might add. Right. But it turned out to be a thing that released his creativity and made him what some people call America's first founding intellectual. Right. You quote, he was also called the George Washington of American literature and the Isaiah of his time and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because he felt we shouldn't continue to rely merely on the traditions of Europe and England in our own literature, but develop our own. Right. Uh, and he was deeply familiar with the uh, European and, indeed, ancient sources. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Emerson's sources. Uh, who were the great uh, figures for him? Well, you, you see them in, in the essays that he wrote about them. Um, <clears throat> Uh, for example, they, they, they run the gamut from Napoleon uh, right. to Goethe, right. from Plato to Montaigne. Um, and, uh, and he had very strong ideas about what made each of them particularly uh, remarkable and exceptional, and, um, and took them as sages. And even, but even more subtly, he taught himself enough German to read some of the translations of the Persian poets to the point where he could actually translate them, read them, and be affected by them, and be affected by documents like the Bhagavad Gita, which was probably the most important oriental, so-called oriental um, literature in his life. He, he never read the Tao Te Ching, of course. Right. The Tao Te Ching wasn't translated until, what, nine years after his death? Nine years after he died. Right. Goethe was a particularly powerful source for him. Yes, indeed. And he, in fact, uh, I think learned German or brushed up his German in order to read uh, uh, the 55-volume edition he owned of Goethe's writings. Right. What was it in, what did he find in Goethe? Well, I think he found the, the, the foundation for what he came to call the need for all of us to be naturalists because that is not the word that we... Uh, he didn't intend that to be the word we take it to be. We take it to be the people who are interested in botany and biology. But what he, he wanted people to be naturalists because it meant they could commune readily, steadily, and forever in awe and affection with the phenomena of nature from dragonflies to oak trees, and including the weather. I mean, he, many of his uh, his journal entries, in particular, 
are are in awe of the vagaries of weather. I, I always uh, I always have to laugh, especially at the entry that um, that he put on March first, which is today. And he he wrote once in his journal in March many weathers. March always comes if it do not come until May. <laughs> May generally does not come at all. That's wonderful. Yeah, and he's not a funny guy generally, but right. I, I just roar every time I read that. In Richardson's biography, uh, Richardson writes, one might list a hundred kindling ideas Emerson found in Goethe. Um, and he says, but he was drawing not only ideas, perhaps not mainly ideas. He was fascinated with the way Goethe's mind worked. Goethe's mind had a hard edge of realism, classicism, and clarity, which was utterly lacking in many of the books whose ideas Emerson valued. Goethe's perpetual sanity, his realism, his language, are for Emerson the counterbalances to the lighter-than-air prose of the great Platonist visionaries and so forth. Uh, and he says, for Goethe, the moment is everything. And so uh, one finds in, in Goethe's approach to nature and to classification, it wasn't the, the, the status of a plant at any given point, but the, the, the moving growth of the plant that fascinated Goethe. And likewise with Emerson, it is not the life we've lived, but the actual living in the moment that matters. Yeah. The famous phrase in that regard is, life only avails, not the having lived. Yes. I mean, in that case, avails means matters. Life only matters now. He was also deeply moved and touched by the Quakers. Yes. In I, fact, at one time he referred to himself as a Quaker. Uh-huh. And that's, that's another one that you see that puts him closer to the camp of the pacifists. Because what he liked there was that he's such a... Um, uh, so venerated the capacity for quiet and for what we now call a meditative or contemplative state and sees it as such a necessity for a balanced life that he was in awe of their willingness to sit and not speak until they were moved at the spiritual level. And that inner light of the Quakers was analogous for him to the concept of reason, which you described as intuition, which he found in Milton and Coleridge and, and the Germans. Exactly. Yeah. What about the Stoic strain in uh, in Emerson? What about the Stoic strain? Yeah, mm-hmm. the, uh, Marcus Aurelius, the the the, the uh, strain of of Stoicism. Well, I don't find that as strong as the other strain. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was um, he was a serious man, a gravely serious man. Mm-hmm. But he also had whimsy. He was a whimsical reader, for example. He's been an inspiration to me for the 50 years that I've been reading him because he's a skimmer, and I'm a skimmer. Uh, I mean, uh, I got into the habit uh, many, many years ago because I had heard stories about a famous writing teacher named Robert Gorham at, um, at Columbia who was asked by his graduate writing students how to improve their vocabulary, and he said, that's easy, read the dictionary. And what he meant was you let, let your eye wander down those columns uh, with uh, just a stream of consciousness. And if your eye stops at a bold-faced entry, it's me- that word was meant for you. So that led me to develop a reading habit that consists of reading nonfiction books, but from the index. I don't read from one page one when I read nonfiction. I go to an index if it has one. And I let my eye wander down there, and wherever I am in life at that moment, if the word abortion hits me, I go back and read it. If it doesn't, I read something else. Well, Emerson was a reader like that, uh, and um, that that was that was one of the things that made me feel justified in my idiosyncrasy. Now, Emerson was an utterly prodigious reader. Oh, unbelievable! Uh, and he adored his books, and he adored um, uh, recommending books, and he. Uh, he and, and um, Bronson Alcott, the, the father of Louisa May, who, who knew Emerson as a ch- when she was a child, uh, and Thoreau would sit around and talk about books, particularly books from the, uh, from the Orient. Uh, in 1855, I think it was, a young man came from England to visit the United States, and when he got to Concord and met Emerson, uh, he said he needed a room, and Emerson says, well, the Thoreau, fa- the Thoreau family needs uh, rent rooms, and you should go there. 
So he stayed for a month, and then two months later when he got back to England, he sent a crate of books to David Thoreau, the 55 books, that uh, with a card that's saying, as you can see, I studied you well. And they were all books of Eastern wisdom. The uh. Bhagavad Gita, the, uh, the Purana, uh, all those things. And uh, Thoreau and Emerson and uh, Alcott uh, circulated those books among themselves and, uh, and talked about them weekly. Uh, leading Thoreau to say at one point in his writings, I am a yogi. There seems to be a very deep resonance between the transcendentalists and uh, Emerson, Thoreau, and uh, the community uh, around Emerson uh, and our own time. In other words, there seems to be a very deep uh, resonance, cultural resonance. Uh, We read, in effect, a lot of the same things. Um, talk a little bit about the transcendentalist circle. Who were they, and, and what was their significance? Well, they were a group of people that were variously called by Emerson the Saturday Night Club, or the greatest club. Uh, he revered the opportunity to meet with them, uh, and they were what we would call today a discussion group, um, the equivalent to today's book groups. Um, and they 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 uh, had several women in them, the most important one being Margaret Fuller, of course, who was a disciple of Emerson's in a sense, uh, and who was one of the most important minds of her time, and certainly the first woman whose writings had any kind of impact that we would consider uh, formidable. And um, they were people, they were the founders of the magazine The Dial, and circulated the editorship of The Dial among them. Uh, and they were, when someone would ask them who they were, they would say, we are, I, the, the word transcendentalist came from Immanuel Kant, but he'd say, if you asked who we are, he'd say, we are the idealists of our age. We believe in the existence of both idealism and materialism, but we, view, we, we believe idealism to be superior, to have a larger, more encompassing worldview, what we would call a cosmic attitude. And that's why I think there's so much resonance. There's a reminder to us to uh, yeah, to be a little more humble in our uh, how we describe the architecture of the world. You describe Margaret Fuller as a disciple of Emerson's. Wouldn't she have seen herself as an absolute co-equal? Oh yes, yes. I it, it's, I'm being chauvinistic on Emerson's behalf. Mm-hmm. If, if not, if not the male chauvinistic. But he was stunned by her. Uh, when she first came to visit, he just was bowled over. Absolutely. And in the biography, there's a, a discussion of of her efforts to become sort of his soul, uh, intellectual soulmate, uh, and how he uh, respected her brilliance, but pushed back and would not take on that, uh, you know, that kind of relationship. It's what we call. Uh, trying to keep it impersonal. Yes. Pure sense of that word, mm-hmm. which means not cold and distant, but not involving the intimacies associated with um, um, union, to a full union. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was very stiff about that, much stiffer than she. She ultimately married an Italian, by the way. And that, was, that would be much more her cultural match, I think, because she was extremely intense. And she met a tragic death. What happened to her? Uh, she and a new, relatively newborn child and the Italian uh, husband were returning to the United States from uh, uh, Europe. And uh, within 200 yards of the shore, the, the boat crashed on a reef and they were unable to save them. Oh, my goodness. It, it was awful. And Emerson was profoundly, profoundly distressed by it. Margaret Fuller once said that she knew everyone worth knowing in the United States, and she never found a mind that was equal to her own. <laughs> I had forgotten that. Yeah, it's a lovely uh, line. Isn't that marvelous? Yeah, it's a lovely line. Earlier on, you talked about uh, having trained in psychosynthesis, which is yeah. the great uh, psycho-spiritual uh, transpersonal psychology uh, created by uh, the Italian... Uh, psychoanalyst Roberto Assagioli. And uh, 
I have followed that, as you know, uh, through the many friends, including you, who have shared that training. When you think about, uh, you spoke about the connection between Emerson and, and Jung. Do you see any parallels or resonances uh, with psychosynthesis specifically? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was recently on a panel in which some colleagues of mine from the psychosynthesis community led a large group of people in a, in a, in a hotel room, 150 people, um, in a visualization meditation exercise uh, to introduce them to the concept of the higher self. And I never felt so Emersonian in my whole life. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that that, that that can be accessed, that the, that the superconscious or the higher unconscious can be accessed, I hate that as a verb, forgive me, can be had access to, um, is uh, very Emersonian and, of course, profoundly Asajolian. And um, I was privileged to, when my publishing days to, to be the person on the recommendation of Michael Murphy to read the hardcover edition of Psychosynthesis, the book which had been published by a medical house. And I was at Viking Press at the time, and I bought the rights for Viking to put it in Viking paperback, and it's still in print. That was 1971. How did... Go ahead. How did you come to know uh, Asa Jolie's work? What was your introduction to Asa Jolie? Well, Mike Murphy of Esalen Institute had been in Russia on a trip in 1970 and came back via Florence when some mutual friends had introduced him to Asa Jolie. And when he came back to New York, he was just still stunned by the experience and said to me, Dick, as you know, I've met all the so-called new psychologists, and I think this guy is the most important one yet. And that's what made me read the manuscript, read the book in the hardcover edition. And I, too, was snowed and immediately uh, put it into print, and then I edited Esther Jolie's second book, The Act of Will by correspondence with him. And in July of 1974, I had the opportunity to go either to go visit him in in Italy or to go into what was then a new training program in psychosynthesis at Stanford in California. And I sort of tossed a coin in my mind and went to uh, California and trained. And um, that's that fall he died. Do you regret, do you regret not meeting him? No, he would. He would. Not, he would have told me to go the other way too. Mm-hmm. If I had done the visualization, the higher self exercise, he would have said, "Of course, go. If you're moved to one of that training, you must do it." Now, beyond the the shared concept of the higher self and psychosynthesis, also in Jungian thought and in Emerson, uh, are there other parallels for you? with uh, the psychosynthesis model of consciousness? For example, the role of the will in psychosynthesis, uh, for example, the question of subpersonalities and how they interact. Are any of those common to Emerson? Yes, indeed. Emerson doesn't use the words we use to describe, for example, finding the center, which is like finding the, 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 the eye at the center of pure consciousness that can act as a uh, conductor of the orchestra of the personality represented by all the uh, subpersonalities. Um, But he hasn't used that language, but he uses those ideas constantly. And when he talks about intuition, or talks about instinct, or talks about the poet in each of us, uh, he is assigning to those words the capacity for reaching the deepest wisdom or the center uh, of of um, that that links with the it links the two things the center the ego center of the personality in daily life and the super the the, the uh, higher unconscious the higher self um, so that that writes the music mm-hmm. <laughs> that the orchestra is trying to perform in life. What about the concept of will in Emerson? Well, he's a perfect example of it himself. He talks about uh, how he can be distracted, for example. He talks in, in his journals in particular about what it sometimes takes for him to get back to what he thinks of as his calling, his mission, his vocation, his destiny. Uh, and, you know, the will is the baton that the, that the eye at the center of personality is able to wield when, when we can do it. 
and we can do it with with uh, practice and assistance. That that of course was a central concept for Asajoli. Absolutely. And and Asajoli was unusual among the modern school of psycho, schools of psychotherapy, uh, which had sort of given up on will. That will was a a 19th century psychological concept, and Asajoli reaffirmed it in the 20th century. Yes, but by, by redefining and expanding what it meant, he, he didn't mean the, the 19th century Victorian will. He meant the enlightened will, and he gave us a map for how to, how to reach that, define that. Um, if you look in the early Freudian, well, from the early and Freudian like, uh, literature through Ernest Jones, and go into the index and look for the word will, by the way, you'll see two entries, almost as footnotes. Right. Because they had so abandoned the idea that it was part of uh, understanding. One of the things I find most appealing in this rereading of Emerson that I've done in, in grateful preparation for this conversation is that I always have been drawn to Neoplatonic thought, to Plato and Neoplatonic thought. But what I resisted was the elitism and the political conservatism that so often accompany that, that, you know, the, the tradition of Leo Strauss and, and the, uh, the neocons and so forth. I've deeply resisted, and I always wanted to find a way to marry uh, idealism uh, 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 and the Platonic tradition uh, to uh, the democratic tradition. And in rereading um, Emerson, of course, I find that that's the essence of what he does, that he talks about, uh, his biographer speaks of, uh, actually, I don't remember whether it's Emerson's roles or, or words or Richardson's, but he speaks of uh, Emerson's role in providing a soul for liberalism. Absolutely. And I just think that's an extraordinary contribution. But you see what the parallel is, for example, that's Jolie there who's credited with providing a soul for psychology. Right. Right? Exactly. The, the marrying of the concrete and, and, and the ideal. You see, Emerson, you can find in Emerson, you can find uh, long essays that are uh, justifications for matter. You know, the very thing that we seem to be inveighing in against right now uh, when we emphasize uh, soul and spirit. But he wants us to be aware of our Im Im embeddedness in both matter and spirit. He just wants to make sure we give spirit priority. Right. And so that sense that, that, as you say, that he insists on the reality of the objective or scientific world, but he also insists that you cannot exclude the subjective, the intuitive, the experiential. Right. And it is that kind of marrying of opposites. So, for example, you, you said you were not as impressed by the Stoic uh, Marcus Aurelius piece. Uh, uh, Richardson is perhaps more impressed than you are by that, but he points out that, that Emerson marries the Stoic with the Dionysian. That's right. So that there's this combination of Stoic restraint but Dionysian self-expression of scientific... Uh, materialism, but uh, spiritual idealism of uh, platonic, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, vision, but at the same time marrying that to, to liberalism. And I think we still haven't exhausted those possibilities. No, we're, we're just being reintroduced to those right, possibilities. Right, right. You know, he at one point he says, the invariable mark of wisdom is to see the miraculous in the common. What is a day? What is a year? What is summer? What is woman? What is a child? What is sleep? To our blindness, these things seem unaffecting. Then he goes ahead and exhorts people to explore and remember that nature is not fixed but fluid. Spirit alters, molds, makes it. Have you ever wondered, just out of curiosity, whether Emerson was actually a reincarnation of Lao Tzu? No. Um, it's been suggested by, by a lot of my uh, uh, yogic friends <laughs> who are closer to that than I am. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, it's quite possible, but who knows? I, I'm, I'm, again, standing small in the face of that question. Absolutely. 
One of the things that Emerson did, uh, in addition to being such an uh, uh, extraordinary reader and such an extraordinary observer of nature, of people, of minds, and everything else, was to keep these amazing journals. Talk, age of 16. talk about his journals. Well, his journals, uh, which we started when he was 16, uh, and already a remarkably cultivated young man, because the Emerson family so valued, they were poor, but they valued education and literature. Uh, and he wrote them until his, uh, well, not quite till his death, because, you know, Emerson actually had um, Alzheimer's. He's always often cited in the Alzheimer literature as one of the famous people who was uh, afflicted with it, and he probably was afflicted with it around his 61st or 62nd year, which would have been uh, 1864. He didn't, uh, no, I'm, I'm off by 10 years. Um, he died in 82 at the age of 79, and for the last nine years of his life, he was essentially, uh, uh, he would say, I'm very well, thank you, but I've lost my mind. Mm-hmm. He actually used those words. And... Um, so, uh, how did we get off on that? We were talking about his journals. Oh, and, uh, but uh, prior to that time, for the, for the 60 years he kept his journals, um, he, they were the savings bank for his work. Uh, he would take long walks. He, at one time, and you can see this if you want to go to Concord and go to the museum, Concord Museum, you can actually see the round table that he caused to be built for his study, which had seven triangular drawers in it. And he used to take long walks. He was an incredible walker, and come back with his and make notes and throw them in these drawers. And then he would write them up in his journals, and then we would ultimately see them in his essays, his lectures, and his books. Um, he was the preeminent journalist, a journal keeper of all times. And his journals are online, are they not? They are. There's a there is a uh, website which was hacked into last night, by the way, because I needed it this morning. Couldn't get into it and talk to the webmaster. I noticed that myself. I tried to get into it last night, and some ominous picture That's said, right. "We've man. got you, we've got you," or something like that. And I thought, "Oh my God!" Well, I, I called Jim Manley this morning. I wrote Jim Manley, and he wrote back and said they were hacked. Actually, their their server was hacked. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He'll be back online after eight o'clock tomorrow night. I'm glad to but hear. The website is rwe.org, and it contains. Um, almost every word that Emerson ever wrote, including the journals, which are, are there in uh, 10 volumes. Um, it's an invaluable resource and a wonderful marrying of 19th and 21st century uh, facilities. So Emerson's journals were extensively cross-referenced. He, he not, they were not only a source for him, but he... He almost made them a, a, a detailed manual of how to find what he needed. Uh, yes, because he would write an index for each section. Right. And um, they're invaluable documents. The originals are at the Houghton Library at Harvard. Right. They are, ex- are quite accessible because the uh, Memorial Association makes them so. They're very cooperative with scholars. In fact, I'm in touch with a young man in China who has finally put together a book of Emerson's writings in Chinese. What is the Emerson community like? Are you sort of part of an extended community that, uh, that studies Emerson? Are you a, a conscious part of a, of a sangha of Emerson? Yes, there is an Emerson Society that was founded about 12 years ago. It's a division of the American Literature Association and meets um, uh, every year in uh, May. Uh, and also a subdivision of the Emerson Society, Society meet with the Thorough people in July in Concord. So as part of the ALA, the Emerson people have their own panels and lectures and so on. And what are the Emerson people like, if you were to describe the community? What's it, what's, what's... It's, a, it's a varied community. It's, the Emerson Society is dominated pretty much by academics. But uh, technically speaking, Bob Richardson was an academic and yet you'll find no livelier companion for conversation about any of the subjects he's ever looked into than he is. He's not at all academic in personality. He's the author of the, the, uh, the biography of Thoreau, uh, which won the Bancroft Prize for History, the, the biography of, um, of Emerson, which also won, won it, that you like so much, and more, more, most recently, William James. 
And talk a little bit about the very uh, remarkable book he wrote about Emerson called First We Read and Then We Write. Well, I had to talk to him uh, to find out what the original inspiration for it was, but there's an implication in the acknowledgments that somebody had told him once he ought to do that, and he started it and put it away, and somebody else pushed him into it again. But it's the subtitle is Emerson and the Creative Process. And in my view, it is one of the most remarkable manuals about writing that's ever been put out. Um, it's just building on, as as uh, Richardson always does, he builds directly on the words of the person he's writing about. And building on uh, Emerson's references to writing and creativity, he's put together a book of 105 pages that's just a masterpiece. I found it a very, very... Very beautiful and very wonderful book. Oh, great. So, Richard, in the time remaining to us, we have uh, perhaps four minutes left. Uh, are there any aspects of Emerson's thought or uh, work that uh, we haven't touched on that you would like to say something about? Well, you know, he was a man of such parts um, that... Um I find myself invoking him in my work as a psychotherapist and, and certainly in my writing. And uh, and he comes up, too, in, in, in many ways in our the cancer work that you and I both do because uh, reading passages from Emerson, for example, can make a wonderful format for meditation to help people get back to center where they need to help reinforce their, their capacity for making choices, for being autonomous, I mean, Emerson's essay on self-reliance, which was, as you pointed out before, been so distorted by so many conservative people, political and social conservatives, to be a justification for 19th century robber baron kind of approach to life is not really about that. Self-reliance, in his case, is reliance on the higher self, reliance on the possibility of a deeper wisdom or a deeper understanding. And um, so he can be he can be used as a tool for uh, helping anybody who's making their journey more conscious. You know, the idea that the unexamined life is not worth living feeds right into Emerson, who helps you examine it in ways you can't believe. For a new reader of Emerson who wanted to know where to start, uh, what which of his essays would you most recommend? I would recommend uh, there's one that I've actually made a recording of that you can get on. Uh, in Amazon on DVD, there, there's a program afoot to try to record all the essays orally. And the one I was uh, I was given my choice of which one to pick, and I picked Circles. Uh, I would recommend Circles. I would recommend Prospects, uh, the thing we talked about before, Chapter 8 of Nature. I would recommend the essay on History, and I would recommend the essay on the American Scholar. For Emerson, the word scholar was... Uh, what we would call uh, today uh, enlightened intellectual. He didn't mean an academic. Richard Grossman, thank you for being with us at the New School. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Michael, always. <laughs>